We'll begin with a word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, our great living God, once again we see what a miracle it has been for you to preserve the line of Judah, the line of David that eventually brought us the Messiah. We see that there are there have been so many threats to this line down through history, but you were always more than able to preserve that line and make it possible for us to have a Messiah so that our sins could be forgiven. And we give you thanks for that. We ask you to help us understand this period of time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're we're talking about Ezra and Nehemiah. Initially, I had just intended to talk about Ezra, but there are so many connections and so many parallels between Ezra and Nehemiah that I decided it was best to to talk about them both together. And actually, that's not surprising because in the ancient Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. It wasn't until the Middle Ages when Hebrew Bibles began to break them up into, into two books. So they were, they were considered one book. There are so many connections, I said, between these two books. Both books begin in Persia and end in Jerusalem. Both center around a man of God, Ezra, Nehemiah, who led a phase of the return. And there were three phases of that return. I'll show you later. Both stories begin with a Persian king's decree. So there's a decree that starts the ball rolling in both cases. Both tell of building as their chief theme. So when the first phase goes to Jerusalem, they go there to build the altar and the temple. And the third phase goes to build the walls of Jerusalem and continue the city. Both books contain a long prayer of humiliation and confession in the ninth chapter. That's kind of interesting. Uh, Both Ezra and Nehemiah have uh, this prayer, a long prayer in the ninth chapter. And it does fit in quite well with Daniel's prayer in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. Both end with the purification of the people. So there are many connections between these two books. And so when I go into the flight, the the facts, the landmarks, the itinerary, the gospel, the history, and the travel tips, I'll give you two sets of them, one for Ezra and one for Nehemiah. So here's the one for Ezra. Jewish tradition states that Ezra himself wrote the book, though the book does not name its author. If Ezra wrote the book, he probably did so shortly after he arrived in Jerusalem in 458 B.C., Landmarks, the book of Ezra, is called the second exodus. Roughly a thousand years after Israel's exodus from Egypt, after the era of judges, a unified kingdom and a divided one, and 70 years in captivity in Babylon, the Jews returned to the promised land. Judah's exile had occurred in three phases, as I mentioned, and there would be three phases of the return under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Ezra covered the first two in his book. So he he talked about the return under Zerubbabel and then his own return. And the third one, of course, is in the book of Nehemiah. So the the itinerary, how the book is structured, well, in the first six chapters, we read about national restoration. And in the... the, uh, so chapter 7 through 10, we read about spiritual reformation that Ezra brought to the land. Gospel. So Rubabel, empowered by God to be the chief builder of the temple, was a descendant of the royal line of the house of David and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. The book is concerned with the purity of the lineage of Israel, particularly of Judah, from whom the prophesied Messiah would come. The name of the high priest is, is worth noticing. Yeshua means, in Hebrew and Aramaic, Yahweh is salvation. Yeshua is translated in the New Testament as the name Jesus. It's fascinating that the high priest in charge of the reconstruction of the temple 
was a man named Jesus. The New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, refers to Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And he, of course, will be the center of focus in the temple that will be built in Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. History, the book begins with Cyrus' decree in 538 B.C. that the Jews could return to Jerusalem. In 539 B.C., the second of the great empires of, in the book of Daniel, the Medo-Persian Empire, conquered the Babylonian Empire. That was in 539 B.C. And then soon after that, in 538 B.C., Cyrus issues a decree that the Jews could return. About two years later, in 536 B.C., thousands of Jews, about 50,000, flooded into Jerusalem and began the temple project. They began building the temple. However, economic and political problems caused delays with the project between 535 and 520 B.C. The temple was finally finished in five, around 516 B.C. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem to teach the law of God to the people in 458 B.C. In that 58-year gap between the temple's completion and Ezra's arrival, the events of the book of Esther were taking place in Persia. So we'll, I'll talk about those later when we get to the book of Esther. But it's just interesting that all of these things are going on. So we have the Jews returning to Jerusalem and building the temple. And then later on, we have the events of the book of Esther. And then after that, Ezra finally makes his trip to Jerusalem. Travel tips. The word of God does the work of God in the people of God. As they rebuilt the temple, the people became discouraged and stopped building. But God raised up two prophets. I mentioned how there's a lot going on in this period of time. This is the time of, of Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets. And he raised them up to encourage them to continue the work of building the temple. So when they ran into opposition from the Persian government, they stuck to God's command to rebuild, trusting that he would see them through the trials. What enemy can stand against the power of God's word? So now we'll start over with the book of Nehemiah, the, the flight characteristics for, for Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah is associated with the book of Ezra, Many scholars believe that Ezra wrote the book, wrote the book of, of uh, Nehemiah. Ezra is thought to have used the memoirs of, of Nehemiah and his own skills as a scribe to create what we now know as the book of Nehemiah. So in, in the book of Nehemiah, as well as in the Esther, there are places where Ezra or Nehemiah is speaking in the first person. Well, it's believed that Ezra used the memoirs of Nehemiah in writing this book. So that's why, why it would be in the first person. The book would have been written sometime between 425 and 400 BC. Nehemiah went from being a cupbearer in Persia, to, to the cupbearer to the king, to a construction builder in Jerusalem. He was a contemporary of Ezra, the priest who led the second group of Jews back from the captivity to Babylon to, uh, to a new start in Israel. About 13 years after Ezra left, Nehemiah led the third and final group back to Jerusalem to build the city. The itinerary, the structure of the book, the first seven chapters talk about rebuilding a city's protection, building the wall. And then chapters 8 through 10 talk about reviving a city's passion. And then chapters 11 through 13 talk about resettling a city's population. So those are, those are the three sections that you can consider in the book. Gospel. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the geographic center of the earth biblically. 
It is also the salvation center of the earth spiritually. We know that Christ was crucified and rose from the dead in Jerusalem. It is also the storm center of the earth prophetically. We know that a great deal of prophetic events will revolve around this city of Jerusalem. Finally, Jerusalem is the glory center of the earth ultimately. The very place that Nehemiah and others were building up will one day be established by God as his kingdom headquarters. History, the events described in the book took place between 458 and 420 BC. King Artaxerxes, the first of Persia, the world's dominant power at the time, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild its walls. Incidentally, this, this Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes, and Xerxes is believed by most scholars to be the Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. So this Artaxerxes would be the stepson of Esther. Nehemiah, a cupbearer in the king's court, and that, that may have had something to do with, with his connections of how he got this position, was through his mother, stepmother, Esther, or excuse me, through Artaxerxes' stepmother, Esther. So Nehemiah became a cupbearer to Artaxerxes. He stayed 12 years in Jerusalem until this project of building the walls was finished, building the city. And shortly after construction was complete, Nehemiah returned to serve Xerxes some more in, in Persia. And then he returned again to Jerusalem for the last time around 425 B.C. Travel tips. Each member of the body of Christ has their part to do in God's work. The book of Nehemiah serves as a great reminder that church isn't a spectator sport, but a filling station. You don't just watch, you, you gas up, get involved, and go out. Large doors swing on small hinges. In his position as the king's cupbearer, Nehemiah took advantage of the requirements of his position to hear news of what was going on in Jerusalem, and then to get involved for God's glory. And that's what we all need to do. I, I've mentioned several times now that there were three phases of Judah's captivity, going into captivity in Babylon, and now there will be three phases in the return. So we can take a look at those. The first phase of the captivity was when Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity in Babylon. The second phase was when Ezekiel and others were taken into captivity in 597 B.C. And then finally, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians decided that they had just had it with these, with these rebellious Jews, always rebelling and not, not paying their, their tribute so they finally just destroyed the city of Jerusalem and, of course, destroyed the temple. And now we begin to learn about the return. In 536 B.C., shortly after Cyrus had issued his, his decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem to build the temple, a, a great many Jews returned, about 50,000 of them, uh, the exact number that's given is uh, 49,697. So they returned to Jerusalem to begin building the temple. And they built the altar first, and then they built the temple. So they built the altar first so that sacrificing could commence. And then they built the temple. And that's sort of like what we have to do, too. Before we can, we, we know that we collectively are the, the temple of God in this era, but before we can even start 
and begin make, remaking ourselves in the image of Christ, we have to come to Christ first. We have to come to our sacrifice. In 458 BC, then Ezra gets permission from Artaxerxes to go to Jerusalem. And the purpose of Ezra's trip is not to build something physical, but to begin teaching people the law of God, the word of God. And then in 445 BC, Nehemiah begins his trip. He's going to Jerusalem to finish the job, building the walls of the city, and then building the city itself. The prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. And of course, we read in the book of Daniel how Daniel discovers this prophecy and sees that, that Israel will be in 70 years will be in captivity for 70 years, and he knows that the 70 years is about up. Jeremiah said, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. So we know two things from this prophecy of Jeremiah. We know that Israel is only going to be in captivity for 70 years, and then we also know that Babylon is going to be punished. And of course, Babylon was punished by the Medo-Persian Empire. The prophet Isaiah had predicted, he had prophesied, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue subdued nations before him. That word anointed is interesting. You won't see this in English translations, but the word, the Hebrew word is Mashiach, Messiah. Now, not that Cyrus was the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, but Cyrus was a Messiah. He was anointed by God for a special mission. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations, nations before him. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. So God had prophesied not only that this man would be raised up to deliver his people, but he had even prophesied his name, his very name, more than a hundred years before he was even born. So God had prophesied that, there, that this man named Cyrus would come to deliver his people. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. So Cyrus was, was responsible through his decree for making it possible for the Jews to begin returning to Jerusalem. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a clay cylinder that archaeologists have discovered. And this cylinder does confirm that Cyrus had this policy of allowing peoples who had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians to go back to their homelands. Brian. Back on that Cyrus slide, what did it mean by, though you did not know me? Well, in other words, God is making this prophecy that the Cyrus is going to come, and Cyrus hadn't even been born yet. So he didn't know about this prophecy. Now, Daniel, who, who worked under both the Babylonians and the Persians, came and showed him this prophecy. You know, so, he, so he didn't know anything about this until Daniel showed him. Okay, so now let's take a look at the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. There are many dates and decrees and so on here, so I, I wanted to, to make sure that you had this in your handouts because there's too much to remember. But these different uh, dates and decrees do become significant. In 538 BC, this is when Cyrus 
issued this decree allowing the return to Jerusalem. In 536 BC, now we're getting into the book of Ezra, construction of the temple began under Zerubbabel. So even though Ezra wasn't personally involved at this point, he, he tells this information, he gives us this information in his book about Zerubbabel and the building of the temple and how construction ceased for a time due to the opposition of Israel's enemies. So in 534, that's when, when work on the temple stopped because the enemies of the Jews actually wrote a letter to the, to the Persian emperor and, said, and told him what was happening. And, and so he, the emperor became, the emperor panicked in other words and, and uh, decided that the, that the building of this, of this temple should stop because uh, the enemies of, of Judah convinced him that these people were likely to rebel, which of course wasn't true, but for a while the, temple, the construction of the temple stopped. After they checked their records, they found that Cyrus had indeed given permission to build the temple. So in 520 BC, the work on the temple resumed. And then the temple was finally completed around 516 BC. And then later on, Ezra obtained permission from Artaxerxes, the king, to return to Jerusalem to teach the people. Finally, in 445 BC, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem and rebuilds the walls, the walls in 52 days. Now, here's a, a chart showing these various uh, dates and decrees and time periods. So this might help you to visualize what's going on here. So back here in 539, that's when, when Babylon fell. And then shortly after that, uh, Cyrus issues this decree that allows the Jews to return. So then Zerubbabel returns and begins construction of the temple. Then the temple work on the temple is stopped. And it doesn't resume again until here in 520 BC. And then around 516 BC, the temple is completed. Now, in this period of time between the first six chapters of Ezra, there's a long gap before chapters 7 through 10 come along. I believe it's a, it's a gap of probably 58 years. And during this time is when the events described in the book of Esther take place under King Xerxes, known in the Bible as Ahasuerus. And he was the father of Artaxerxes. So there's this gap here between the activities of Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple and the time that Ezra comes on the scene in Jerusalem in 458 BC. And then in 445 BC, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem and builds the walls. So we have this gap in here in the chapters of, of, of Ezra and then the book of Nehemiah is here. During the same time, uh, we look at the prophets. Now, Daniel was a very young man when he went into captivity, but by this time he's a very old man by the time that, that uh, Cyrus comes along and issues his decree. Zechariah and Haggai were the two prophets that, that God raised up to encourage the people to continue construction of the temple, despite the obstacles. And then Malachi comes in towards the end of the book of Nehemiah. And Malachi, of course, closes out the, the canon of the Old Testament. So once again, there's this 58-year gap between the early chapters of Ezra and the later chapters of Ezra. And there's a 13-year gap between Ezra and Nehemiah. All of these 
dates and decrees become significant when we're considering the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again. So 62 plus 7 is 69. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So there's this total of 69 weeks of years that were complete. So we can see that the 70 weeks prophecy is kicked off. It starts with a decree. But as you've seen, there are many decrees in Ezra and Nehemiah. So the question is, which decree? When, when does the 70 weeks begin? And there are several candidates for, for that decree. And we have to establish which decree we're talking about before we can figure out when the 70 weeks starts, when it begins. Is it the decree of Cyrus in 539 BC, when he allowed the Jews to return? Is it the decree of Darius in 520 BC, when he gave the decree that the, that the temple construction should be resumed? Was it the decree of Artaxerxes to Esther, or to Ezra, excuse me? Was it the, that decree in, in, in uh, 458? Or was it the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in 445 BC? Which decree is it? Well, if we read uh, Daniel chapter 9 very carefully, you will see that it's talking about the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So that establishes for us which decree it is. The first two decrees are about building the temple. The third decree is about Ezra going to Jerusalem to teach the people. And only that fourth decree, that one in 445 BC, is the one that is to build the city of Jerusalem. But what about that date of 445 BC? Is that accurate? Well, a man named Sir Robert Anderson, in 1895, he wrote a book called The Coming Prince. And he began with the date that was fairly well established at that time, and, and this date has been used by uh, conservative biblical scholars for many years, probably close to 150 years by now, as March 14th, 445 B.C. And then he took the exact number of days, Robert Anderson did. So he took 69 weeks of years times 7 years per week times 360 days in a prophetic year and he came up with 173,880 days. So beginning with March 14th, 445 BC, he came to April 6th, AD 32. And he felt that that was the, the day on which Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, just before his crucifixion. Since that time, uh, another scholar has come along, Harold Honer. He wrote a book called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And Eric has mentioned his, his work several times. So he investigated and discovered that that date of March 14th, 445 BC, wasn't quite accurate. He, he felt that it should be March 4th, 444 BC. So it's almost a year later. And he felt that the 70 weeks prophecy should begin on that date. So when he added 173,880 days to March 4th, 444 BC, he came out that the triumphal entry occurred on March 30th in AD 33. 
So he believed that that was the year of the crucifixion. The crucifixion would have been four days after this March 30th date. So here's a, a diagram, that, a chart that might help you to uh, process some of this stuff. So we begin with March 4th, 444 BC, and then we go 173,880 days. We come to March 30th, AD 33, as the time when Jesus made his triumphal entry in Jerusalem. And then the crucifixion would have been four days later on April 3rd, AD 33. I noticed in this chart uh, one error. I see that <laughs> there's a plus sign here. That plus sign should be an equal sign. So 483 times 360 equals 173,880, not plus. And then, of course, this 70th week, we don't know when that is yet. But this gives us uh, an indication of when the 70 weeks began and when the Messiah made his triumphal entry and was crucified. Here's a map of the conquest of Cyrus the Great. You can see that he's a very active man. He came out of Persia into Media. Uh, he defeated the Babylonians. And he went clear up here into Asia Minor, Turkey today. And he went to the east. The, the Persian Empire extended uh, far beyond Iran. We, we normally think of, of the Persian Empire as being um, Iran, but actually the Persian Empire was much larger than just Iran. It went to the east, clear over um, to the Indus River, the, you know, in the border of India. So it was a, an enormous uh, landmass. It's probably the, the largest empire that's ever existed. Um, it didn't have as many people, of course, as the Roman Empire. But when you consider as a percentage of the population that was on Earth at that time, the, the, the Persian Empire was larger than the Roman Empire. It, it had a greater percentage of the Earth's population under its control. Here's another map of the Persian Empire. And once again, you can see how if you're going to go from this end of the Fertile Crescent to this end of the Fertile Crescent, you have to go up around. You can't go straight across because you wouldn't march an, an army across here and you certainly wouldn't take civilians across here. It might seem like a shortcut, but it's a very deadly shortcut. So here's another map showing where the exiles were. They were around Babylon, and they're going to return to Jerusalem. And so you go up, in traveling there, you go up around the, along the Euphrates River, and then you turn south and go into Israel. Susa was one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. I say one of the capitals because... They had two capitals, and we'll, I'll talk about that more when I get to the book of Esther. Susa and Persepolis, they had a winter capital and a, and a summer capital you know, because it was more pleasant to, to be in one place in the summertime and more pleasant to be in another place in the wintertime. Susa is where the events of the book of Esther take place. And this map here is showing the three phases of the return. The first under Zerubbabel, coming to, to Israel. The second under Ezra. And the third under Nehemiah. So Nehemiah was serving the king over here in Susa. He had to go to Babylon, where most of the Jewish people were, and then on to Jerusalem. So the, the number of people in each phase of the return, the first return was the largest. It was just under 50,000. 
And with Ezra, there was only 1,758 returning. And we simply don't know how many there were returning with, with Nehemiah to build the walls. And this shows another map of the returns of the Jewish exiles to Jerusalem. Once again, going up along that fertile crescent route, you have to follow the Euphrates River, and then you can turn south. That is, if you want to have some water to drink along the way. Most of the Jewish people were, were settled in here right around Babylon. So even though Nehemiah was serving over here in Susa, he had to travel over here to gather up Jewish people to go with him in the return. The Persian Empire was, was divided into what they call satrapies, which are just provinces. And so there was a satrapy that was beyond the river. It's interesting that from the perspective of Persia, beyond the river means on the west side of the Euphrates River. From the perspective of Israel, beyond the river means the east side of the Euphrates River. The, the, the satrapy of beyond the river was divided up into smaller units. And Judah, Judea was much smaller than the country of Judah was when, when uh, David and Solomon and the, the kings of Judah reigned. So the area to the north of them was, was Samaria, where the Samaritans lived. To the south was Idumea, where the Edomites lived. And you can see how this area was much larger than it was in, in Second Kings. So Kiriath Arba here is another name for Hebron. Well, Hebron is, it was part of Judah, but you can see here it's been taken over by the Edomites. Likewise with Lachish. Uh, Ashdod, uh, this was the area of the Philistines along the Mediterranean coast, but you can see that their uh, territory has been greatly expanded. And then this area here, which includes Joppa, which was a main port for Israel, that has gone to the Sidonians, to the Phoenicians up north. So, when Israel began to rebuild in Jerusalem, you might say that they had opposition coming at them from all sides. Up to the north, they had Sanballat from the Samaritans. To the east, they had Tobiah, who was some kind of an official in, in Ammon. And this Tobiah was actually married to the daughter of Meshullam, one of Nehemiah's staff on this wall building project. And then of course, to the south, we have the Arabs and to the west, we have the, the Ashdodites, that's that area that was controlled by the Philistines. So they're all opposing the building of first the temple and then of the walls of Jerusalem. So you can see why it became necessary to have half of the people building at the time of Nehemiah and the other half standing guard because they faced this incredible opposition. Earlier, the, the enemies of Israel had actually wrote, written letters to the Persian king uh, urging him to stop this building. But eventually the, the building commenced again. Now, these next few slides are maps of the city of Jerusalem. And I find that there are two different opinions here about the city of Jerusalem. You remember from Samuel and, and Kings how the, the first, when, when David first conquered the city of Jerusalem, it was just this narrow little strip of land on, in this, uh, on the southern ridge. And then Solomon expanded it to the north where he built the, the temple and his palace. And then during the divided monarchy, Israel expanded to the west. Well, some scholars think that when 
Israel returned to Jerusalem, it was reduced once again to about the size that it was during the reigns of, of David and Solomon, and that they didn't inhabit this western area. So all of the gates that Nehemiah talks about, the fountain gate, the horse gate, the muster gate, and the sheep gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the fish gate, and so on, that all of these gates were in the walls here around the city. There's another more three-dimensional diagram. There may have been some buildings that were erected along the hill on the western side, but the main walled part of the city was, was here, these uh, scholars think. There's another three-dimensional type map of the city of Jerusalem. Everybody agrees that when the Israelites, when the, when the Jews came to the city of Jerusalem, there, there, was, there wasn't much left. I mean, there were just little, little pieces of the fragments of the wall remaining here. But some scholars think that when the Israelites returned to, to Jerusalem, that they actually did build walls around this western part of the city. And so they think that these, some of these gates were, were in this western part. And this is kind of an intermediate map. Um, it's expanded to the west a little bit, but not too far. So there are differences of opinion, and it's very hard to establish this archaeologically because there just isn't much left from that time period. Now here, here is the, the city of Jerusalem. Here's the, the city that David knew, and then Solomon expanded it to the north. Now here are the modern walls of the old city, as they are today. Here. And the walls of the old city really aren't that old. Um, they, were, they were built by a Muslim ruler called Suleiman the Magnificent. He was a, a ruler of the Ottoman Empire, and he built the walls in the 1500s AD. So the old city isn't really all that old, the old city that you see today. Now, the second temple we are really not given much information about the dimensions of the second temple. So you'll see a lot of different diagrams about what this temple may have looked like because all we are told is that it was 60 cubits wide and 60 cubits high. We're not given any other dimensions. We're not told how long it was. We're not told anything else about the temple or any of its furnishings. So you'll see many different diagrams of what Scholars think the, this temple may have looked like. The, the temple that was standing in Christ's day is still called the second temple. Because by that time, Herod the Great had begun a great project to, to uh, rebuild the temple, to refurbish it. So the... Uh, the temple that was built in the time of, of Ezra and Nehemiah was, very, was rather plain looking. And so the old timers who had been around during the time of the first temple, they, they wept because this temple was so inferior to, to uh, the temple that they had known in Solomon's day. But um, by, by the time of Christ, this second temple had been greatly refurbished and, and remodeled, and so it, it was once again a very glorious building in Christ's day. Now, I mentioned that, that uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Uh, this is a, a stone relief, a carving in stone of a king sitting on his throne at the right, and the cupbearer presenting him with his cup, this is uh, an Assyrian king, actually. His name is Asher Nasserpal. And so this just gives you an idea of what uh, cup-bearing was like, being a cup-bearer to the king. 
you might think that being a cupbearer is kind of a, you know, a, kind of a minor official. It's not that important. But when you consider how often people tried to poison kings in the ancient world, you begin to see that uh, you want a very trustworthy person being your cupbearer. So uh, being the king's cupbearer was a very honored position, a very high honor. And we're told that Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. So he was a very prominent official in the court. Mutual themes in Ezra and Nehemiah. Both men returned to Jerusalem from captivity. Both Ezra and Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem from captivity. Both books highlight the rebuilding of a Jerusalem-related object. So Ezra, the book of Ezra highlights the rebuilding of the altar and the temple. And the book of Nehemiah highlights the building of the walls and the actual city of Jerusalem. Both books provide a lengthy list of those who returned under Zerubbabel. Both books provide a lengthy list of, of that initial return of just under 50,000 people. Both men bear witness to the fact that the hand of God was upon them. So this wasn't just something that Ezra and Nehemiah decided to do on their own. This is something that God motivated them to do. Both books highlight the joy experienced by those who were in on the ground floor of new beginnings. Over and over again, Ezra and Nehemiah emphasize what a privilege it is to take part in this great groundbreaking work. It's kind of like in the book of Revelation that we are told that blessed are they who have a part in this first resurrection. It is indeed a great privilege and a great honor to serve God. And we continue with those mutual themes. The festival of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, appears in both books, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you remember from 2 Kings, when the temple, the first temple, the temple that Solomon built, was dedicated, they celebrated Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the prophet Zechariah tells us that in the Millennial Kingdom, people will also celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It's interesting that in all of the feasts of Israel, Sukkot is the only one where you are commanded to be happy. (laughs) It's not optional. You have to be happy. Both books emphasize the stiff outside opposition that the builders encountered. Both in Ezra and in Nehemiah, the people, the Jewish people, received incredible opposition from their neighbors to the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Both books remind God's people that they must separate from the ways of other nations. Both books prohibit, prohibit exogamous marriage. Now, what that means is marriage to outsiders, to foreigners. And both books deal with this issue. Both Ezra and Nehemiah pray prayers of confession. I mentioned to you that in the ninth chapter of Ezra and as well as in the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, both men pray, and they are prayers of confession. So all the, all the prayers are prayers of confession. There is another prayer also in, in the book of Nehemiah. There's, there's a lengthy prayer at the end, near the end of Ezra. There's a lengthy prayer near the beginning of Nehemiah. And then there's another one further on. And I mentioned how Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9 is also a prayer of confession. Each of these Prayers features a distinct physical posture for the prayer. 
No particular posture is the posture for prayer. Kneeling, sitting, standing, they're all acceptable. So we shouldn't think that one position is better for prayer. There isn't, there isn't one position that you pray in and, and God will accept that, but if you pray in some other position, God won't accept that. No. The important thing is that you do pray, not what position you are in while you are praying. Ezra and Nehemiah both begin with the first person singular pronoun, I, but shortly shift to the first person plural, we. Ezra and Nehemiah identify with their people. They are not only praying for their people as intercessor, but also are praying with their people as mutual supplicant. In none of these prayers is there any protestation of innocence, any challenge of God's mercy. They never say, well, God, you were right to punish us, but not this much. No, that's not what they say. Ezra says, you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. So they're saying to God, you had every right to punish us even more than you did. Now, one of the things that makes you go, hmm, or maybe it doesn't make you go, hmm, but it makes some people go, hmm, is this thing in both Ezra and Nehemiah about the prohibition against intermarriage, with intermarriage with foreigners, that is. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Some modern readers will be quick to dismiss Ezra and Nehemiah as too harsh, too unrealistic, too legalistic, too racist, too xenophobic, and too misogynistic. Did I miss anything? (laughs) But there definitely was an expansion of this principle of no intermarriage with foreigners. In Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4, it only prohibits marriage with seven groups of Canaanites. It doesn't prohibit marriage with any other nations, just these seven groups of Canaanites. And then in Deuteronomy 23.3, it adds the Ammonites and the Moabites as two other people groups that you are to avoid. Now, it doesn't technically say that you can't marry them, but what it says is that that these people should not be admitted to to the fellowship, to the to the people of Israel, and so that implies that there's no intermarriage with them. But Daniel, but Ezra and Nehemiah expand the prohibition on intermarriage to all nations, to all peoples. They say that Israel shouldn't intermarry with anybody outside of their own people group. Now, there are a couple of things that, I, that you should take note of here. On both occasions, the reforms come initially not from Ezra and Nehemiah, but from representatives of a repentant community. So Ezra and Nehemiah didn't impose these rules on the people. Representatives of the people first came to them and acknowledged that this was not a good situation. And then you may find this surprising Both Ezra and Nehemiah condemn only Jewish men for marrying non-Jewish women. Neither condemns Jewish women for marrying non-Jewish men. In other words, the culprits are exclusively male. You might wonder why that is. Well, in effect, what Ezra and Nehemiah are saying to Jewish women is, okay, if you want to marry a non-Israelite, a non-Jewish man, you can do that but then you're going to be part of their community, not ours. Jewish men, on the other hand, were expected to continue to be active participants of the Jewish community. So that's why it was so significant for Jewish men not to marry 
pagan Gentile women. The, the next uh, slide is a quote. The next two slides are a quote from Victor Hamilton in his commentary about this. I think this gives us a, a good insight and puts it all in perspective. Recall that Ezra is part of a chastened community that has lost all sense of cohesion and stability, a community that is just starting getting back on its feet and, and learn from its earlier mistakes. Things like unrestrained intermarriage would not simply dilute the community's religious boundaries, but be a Trojan horse that would unleash a torrent of problems to compound the ones already present. If the religious heritage of the Hebrew people cannot be maintained at this level, the family is the foundation of society, can it be maintained at all? Ezra is concerned with a matter of spiritual survival. And so we can certainly thank Ezra and Nehemiah for taking the actions that we did, that they did, so that we could have a savior. Now, I, I chuckle about this because there are some good management techniques that are given to us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But when people start thinking that everything in the Bible, I mean everything, should be applied directly in our lives, Everything can be applied directly, should be applied directly. We should do exactly what those biblical people did. Well, whenever people start thinking that, I like to point them to the scripture. Now, I'll read this verse of scripture. And as I read it, I want you to think about how well it would work if you applied this directly to your circumstances. Think about how it would work if you use these techniques with your spouse, with your family, with your relatives, with your friends and neighbors, with your co-workers, and with people in the church. So here we go. This is Nehemiah 13, 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. So, so I think that this is, I think that this is description rather than prescription. <laughs> I think it's telling us what Nehemiah did in his circumstances is not necessarily telling us what we should be doing in our circumstances. So, <laughs> so sounds like a what? <laughs> So anyway, that, that concludes the historical books of the Bible. In other words, the, the books of the Bible that give us chronological information that we can use to, to create a Bible chronology. And now we'll turn to what I call the, the add color books. The books that, that um, fill in the gap, so to speak. So we'll be looking at... Uh, We'll be looking at Leviticus. We'll be looking at Deuteronomy. We'll be looking at Ruth. And we'll, so we'll be filling in some of the, the gaps of these periods that we've looked at before. So obviously, Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy take place during the, uh, the wilderness wanderings with Moses. And the book of Ruth takes place during, during that judges period. But we don't know exactly when during the judges' period the events of the book of Ruth take place. So that's why I call them the Ed Color books rather than the historical books. So we'll close with a, with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for the information that you provided for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah.
we see how accurate your word is and how faithfully you've told us and laid out for us future events, predicting the coming of, of Cyrus even by name, showing us the incredible 70 weeks prophecy that led up to the coming of Jesus and his dying on the cross for us and then carrying us forward to that 70th week yet to come. We thank you that you preserved the line of David so that the Messiah could come to us. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sorry, what did you say? Yeah. Um.